You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. You know, people sometimes ask me, who do I write for, mm-hmm. right? And I actually write for myself I can as tell. a young kid. <laughs> yeah, the guy, the guy we're reading about right here. Yeah. Yeah, right. so start with, uh, uh, go ahead, start with the okay, when. When I was in high school, I decided to follow in the footsteps of these great scientists and put some of my learning to the test. I wanted to be part of this great revolution that I knew would change the world. I decided to build an atom smasher. I asked my mother for permission to build a 2.3 million electron volt particle accelerator in the garage. She was a bit startled, but gave me the okay. Then I went to Westinghouse and Varian Associates, got 400 pounds of transformer steel, 22 miles of copper wire, and assembled the Betatron accelerator in my mom's garage. Previously, I had built a cloud chamber with a powerful magnetic field and photographed tracks of antimatter. But photographing antimatter was not enough. My goal was now to produce a beam of antimatter. The atom smasher's magnetic coil successfully produced a huge 10,000 gauss magnetic field, about 20,000 times the Earth's magnetic field, which would in principle be enough to rip a hammer right out of your hand. The machine soaked up six kilowatts of power, draining all the electricity my house could provide. When I turned on the machine, I frequently blew out all the fuses in the house. My poor mother must have wondered why she could not have a son who played football instead. So two passions have intrigued me my entire life. The desire to understand all the physical laws of the universe in a single coherent theory and the desire to see the future. Eventually, I realized that these two passions were actually complementary. The key to understanding the future is to grasp the fundamental laws of nature and then apply them to the inventions, machines, and therapies that will redefine our civilization far into the future. There have been, I found out, numerous attempts to predict the future, many useful and insightful. However, they were mainly written by historians, sociologists, science fiction writers, and futurists, that is, outsiders who are predicting the world of science without a first-hand knowledge of the science itself. The scientists, the insiders who are actually creating the future in their laboratories, are too busy making breakthroughs to have time to write books about the future for the public. That is why this book is different. I hope this book will give an insider's perspective on what miraculous discoveries await us and provide the most authentic, authoritative look into the world of 2100. Hurrah! <laughs> <laughs> well, now you know why I write these books. I love physics, and I love the future, and they really are the same thing. Michio Kaku is a professor of theoretical physics at the City University of New York, the host of the science channel show Sci-Fi Science, Physics of the Impossible, the host of two radio programs, Explorations and Radio Fantastic, and the author of the books Beyond Einstein, Einstein's Cosmos, Visions, Hyperspace, Parallel Worlds, and Physics of the Impossible. His newest book is Physics of the Future, How Science Will Shape Human Destiny in Our Daily Lives in the Year 2100. And Thank the you. book just hit the bestseller list, uh, number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. So there are a lot of people out there curious about the future. And I, it's it's understandable. Now, in order to get this wonderful portrait of the future, you had to go through a lot of work. Talk about choosing and interviewing 300 scientists. Well, first of all, every week I interview two scientists, <laughs> and it's a labor of love because I talk to my friends. I get to talk to the people at the forefront, the cutting edge of science. I get to talk to people who are inventing the future in their laboratory. And for the Science Channel and the Discovery Channel, I get to bring a film crew into their laboratory and film the therapies, the wondrous computer inventions, the robots that they're, they're building in the laboratory. And so I feel, I feel like a kid in a toy shop. I'm just surrounded by all the toys, and there I have a front row seat into the future. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. 
Now, one of the things that I, I like about this book is you mentioned up at the upshot uh, the importance of your editors. Now, it's one thing to have all this tape and video, but what we have before us is a really well-written book. So I'd like you to talk just a little bit about the importance of editors and collecting these interviews and getting transcriptions and then converting what you've spoken about into some really great prose that captures our imaginations. Well, it's a labor of love in the sense that, well, some people ask me, isn't it tiring work? I mean, editing and transcribing, isn't it a lot of work? And I say to myself, well, no, because I would do it anyway. You know, I surf the web just trying to figure out what's happening in the world of nanotechnology, biotechnology, cosmology. I do that anyway on my own. Now I can actually write books and do TV programs and radio specials around it. But yeah, you got to have a firm hand. You got to have an editor who will tell you, hey, you're going off the deep end this time. Bring it back down to earth. And I also realize that sometimes editors can be timid. You know, when Jules Verne in 1863 wrote Paris in the 20th century, he predicted Paris a hundred years into the future. And his editors were so afraid. They said, this is incredible. Skyscrapers in Paris in 1960, fax machines, automobiles, preposterous. And they put in a safe for over 100 years. They were simply too timid to publish Jules Verne's prediction of the next 100 years in Paris. His, I think it was his great-grandson who accidentally came upon it in a safe and realized, oh, my God, my relative predicted Paris, and he got it right on the dot. Now, one of the things about... Uh predictions of the future is we read a lot of them and we hear a lot of them. And as you say, they're very conservative and it's easy to uh, underestimate. So I'd like you to talk a a little bit about um, trying to get yourself, imagine what you can't imagine, because that's kind of what you tasked yourself with trying to do. Right. Uh, Science is growing exponentially so that you go to any university library and the physics books are doubling in size and weight every 10 years or so. Now, here's the test. Imagine that you could meet your grandparents of 1900 right now. What would they think of you? Well, in 1900, your grandparents and great-grandparents were probably dirt farmers. They didn't live very long in those days, perhaps living to age 40 or so on average. Um, uh, Long-distance travel was walking on your own two feet. Uh, Horses and donkeys were for the rich. And uh, high-tech meant a telegraph. That's your relatives. Now, if they look at you with your rocket ships, GPS system, iPods, iPads, the Internet, they would consider you to be a wizard or a sorcerer. Now imagine meeting your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren of the year 2100. With the exponential growth of science, how would we view our own flesh and blood if we could meet them? I think we would view them as gods, the gods of mythology. Zeus could simply think and materialize any object you wanted, move any object you wanted by thinking. And there are perks to being a god. Venus had a perfect body. She had a timeless body. So there are perks to being a god. And Apollo, he rode on a chariot across the sky, floating across the sky. And Pegasus was an animal that didn't exist on the surface of the earth. You know, we're going to have this power. We will consider our grandkids to have the power of a god. As Arthur C. Clarke once said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I say, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from divinity. That sounds like a lot of fun to me. Now, uh, you talk about some of the predictions. Da Vinci also had some remarkably accurate predictions, didn't he? Yes. Not only did Jules Verne get the moon rocket right to within 10%, not only did he get Paris right in 1960, but Da Vinci went even farther and predicted centuries into the future. His notebooks are incredible. There he was sketching the wings of birds and sketching airplanes that would actually fly. You know that? He drew the diagram of an adding machine, a calculator. It was never built until IBM finally assembled it, and it works. It's a series of wheels. You turn the wheels, and it adds. It adds and subtracts. I mean, this was da Vinci hundreds of years before the first working adding machine. And the only thing that da Vinci missed was he didn't have an engine capable of powering his airplanes. 
But the parachute he got right. But you can't blame Da Vinci for not having an engine. That wouldn't come for another two or three hundred years. Now, one of the things that I like is that um, you use a, a lot of uh, examining history in the past, how we progress through history to help predict the future. And I think this is a very interesting way. And I, and I think it's instructive rather than trying to um, just merely extrapolate from where we are now. You look at where we were and see how fast we got to where we are now and then make the next leap. Right. And science is not linear, but one invention historically cascades into a series of inventions. Take a look at steam power. Steam power around 1800 led to the locomotive, textile machines, the industrial revolution coming from the steam engine, and that created wealth, wealth that went into the London Stock Exchange and crashed in 1850. So the first major crash of capitalism, which gave birth to Marxism, by the way, uh, was caused by the introduction of steam power. Then next came electricity. The invention of electricity, utilities, and also the gasoline-fired engine created fabulous wealth in the 1900s, leading up to the crash of the stock exchange in 1929. <laughs> and then, you think we'd learned a lesson, the next great invention was high technology, chips and computers and lasers and rocket ships. That led to a fantastic wealth which crashed in 2008. So every 80 years on average, there's no hard and fast rule, of course, 80, 80, every 80 years or so, some seminal invention, steam power, electricity, the transistor, leads to a torrent of wealth which causes a bubble which crashes and causes a crash of the market. So if this theory is correct, it means that around 2090, around, the, around 2100, our grandkids may experience another crash because of nanotechnology, biotechnology, artificial intelligence. They're going to energize the economy in this century. You know, when you were talking about steam, all I could think about was Charles Fort, who had a great quote that was, a social growth cannot find out the use of steam engines until comes steam engine time. And it seems every technology has its own time, doesn't it? Yes. For example, artificial intelligence. Um, everyone says it's around the corner, but it turned out to be a lot harder than we thought. But its time will come. I'd say perhaps mid-century or late 21st century. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Our most advanced robot has the intelligence of a cockroach, uh, a stupid cockroach, a lobotomized stupid cockroach. However, its time will come. And biotechnology, its time is coming now. Its time is coming now in the sense that we're going to live a lot longer in the future. You know that we are 98.5% identical to a chimpanzee, 98.5% identical. Therefore, only a handful of genes separate us from a chimpanzee. And yet we live twice as long. This is big. Among a handful of genes are the age genes which doubled our lifespan. So in the future, when everyone has a chip with all our genes on it, we'll scan the genes of old people, subtract them from the genes of young people, and isolate the age genes with a computer program. This is big. This is really big. I think our grandkids will age to maybe 30 and decide to stop aging and just cruise at 30 for a while. All our children will need is Da Vinci's calculator to uh, make that subtraction, eh? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, one thing that's important throughout this book um, that you keep bringing back, and I think this is a, a key concept to understanding the book, is the caveman principle. Yeah. Explain to us the caveman principle. Some people say, ha, you idiots. I mean, look at the paperless office. Didn't you guys tell, tell us we're going to have the paperless office? No paperless office. And didn't you guys predict the people-less city? We'll all teleconference from home. We don't have to commute. Therefore, cities will collapse. We'll all stay in our house and have teleconferencing meetings. Well, today we have more paper than ever, and we have more commuting than ever. What went wrong? I think the reason is the caveman principle. At heart, 100,000 years ago, uh, our emotions, our personality came out of Africa, and we haven't changed in 100,000 years. We are emotionally, socially identical to the cavemen of 100,000 years ago, except we have nuclear weapons, and we have iPods, and we have satellites. So why do we have the paperless office turn into a joke? Because cavemen want proof of the kill. 
It's not enough to brag about the big one that got away. You have to show it or else no one's going to believe you. Therefore, we like paper. Paper is proof of the kill. We don't trust those electrons dancing on a computer screen that vanish when you hit the wrong button. We don't trust them. And also, why is it that we like uh, commuting and bonding with people? Because you see, if you are a hunter-gatherer like our ancestors, you have to trust who you're hunting with. You have to bond with them. And if you're a boss, you have to look your underlings in the eye and watch them squirm because they could be cheating you. They could be lying. Deception. So bonding, determining deception, you want to have a one-to-one meeting with them. And here's a test. What way would you choose? A beautiful, gorgeous photograph of your favorite rock star or two ratty-looking old tickets to their concert? Well, hands down, you take the ratty tickets. You're not going to have a, a nice, glorious picture of your rock star. Why? Because we're cavemen at heart. We like to bond. We want proof. We want to be there, bragging rights. We want to have the intimate connection with our leaders. And that was good for our evolution. So that's why we're still stuck with all the, the quirks of the cavemen. And that's why, for example, when some people say that in the future we'll be super smart and have implants coming out of our head like the Borg, no, <laughs> we're not going to look like the Borg. We want to be sexy looking. We want to be attractive to the opposite sex. We want to be neat looking. We don't want to have things dangling out of our head. So the caveman principle says we're not going to look like the Borg in the future. If we're going to enhance ourselves, we're going to enhance ourselves to look cool, not to look like the Borg. <laughs> now, one of the things that uh, I, I saw as I read through this book is some of the themes. Um, and one of the themes is that Things are going to get smaller and things are going to get smarter pretty much all around across the board, aren't they? Yes. By 2020, chips will cost about a penny. That's the cost of scrap paper. That's the cost of bubblegum wrappers, meaning that chips are going to be free of your laptop and disappear into the fabric of life. Now, today, under your feet, in the walls, in the ceiling, there is water. There is electricity. Where is electricity today? Everywhere and nowhere. And how do we pay for it? We meter electricity. We meter water, and they are both invisible, and yet they are everywhere. That's the future of your computer. Your computer will disappear. Chips will be thrust into the environment under your feet, in the walls, in the ceiling, and they will compute in the cloud. That's how you'll be billed for computer time. And so that's the way that computer power is going to be. And then your children, your grandkids, are going to say, Grandma, Grandpa, you telling me that when you were growing up, a table is just a table? It just sat there and did nothing? It was stupid? A wall was just a wall? You couldn't talk to it? You couldn't animate a wall? You couldn't change the color of the wallpaper by snapping your finger? Is that the world you lived in? Yuck. <laughs> now, uh as you talk about uh, computers in, in this book, the future of the computer, and one of the things I thought that was very interesting was you brought up the economic consequences of Moore's Law. Describe to me the scene when you first told uh, an audience that you thought Moore's Law was going to come to a grinding halt. Yes. You go to Silicon Valley, and they think Moore's Law is going to extend forever. Wrong. I'm a quantum physicist. I know that Moore's Law is going to collapse around 2020. And why is that? Two reasons. First is heat generation. You have chips that have so much power, it generates heat, so you can fry an egg on them. They will melt as a consequence. Oh, tell us what Moore's Law is first. Oh, Moore's Law simply says the computer power doubles every 18 months. Mm -hmm. It's the most important law of modern times. This means that when you get a chip in the mail that sings happy birthday to you, that chip has more computer power than all the Allied forces of 1945. Hitler, Churchill, Eisenhower would have killed to get that chip that you throw away in the garbage. This means that by 2020, computers will be about a thousand times cheaper, a thousand times more powerful than they are today. So chips will cost a penny. They'll be cheaper than the barcode on your, your plastic wrapper. They'll be cheaper than the wrapper itself. And so in the future, we will assume that things are intelligent. Wallpaper will be intelligent. Uh, we'll have flexible paper. We'll simply talk to the wall, and the wall will talk back to us and access any information we want. And by the way, our contact lenses will also be intelligent. We'll look at any object and see uh, the person's biography printed out in our contact lens. If they speak Chinese to us, uh, the subtitles in Chinese will appear. 
And who's going to buy these internet contact lenses? College students taking final examinations. They will <laughs> love these contact lenses because they will blink, blink. And there you have all the sines and cosines, blink, and there you have all the amino acids. No more studying useless facts and figures that you can look up anyway on the internet. Now, uh, one of the things that struck me what about as I read your book was that what we see is that there we'll have things have forms or uses or goals. And what's going to happen uh, from what you say is that there'll be a whole layers of underlying technology. Things will still have their their forms and their goals, but the essentially the magic or our godlike powers will cause those thing those things goals to just appear magically for us. Yeah, one of my favorite Star Trek episode is when they landed on a planet and they met a god. They met Apollo straight out of the high school textbooks. There was Apollo and his chariot and the whole works. And the crew of the Enterprise were powerless with their 23rd century technology to take down a god. But then they figured it out. They said, hey, wait a minute. We're, we're scientists. We're not religious mytholo mythologists. There must be a power source, a power source that is responsible for all the magical powers of this god. Sure enough, they found it. They destroyed that power source, and the god became a human. That's us in the future. We will mentally control a power source in our house, and that power source in turn will move objects around for us, create images that are fantastic, create objects of anything we want. We will mentally control a power source that in turn carries out all our wishes. So yeah, we will have divinity in the future. We'll live longer, have perfect bodies, and we'll simply think and manipulate objects around us. And the groundwork for that is being laid today. Every single one of the hundreds of predictions I make in Physics of the Future has a prototype. I'm not a science fiction writer. I'm a hard-nosed physicist. I want to see proof proof that you guys have a prototype for everything you claim. And I took a TV crew and photographed it for the Discovery Channel and the Science Channel. Speaking of laying the ground, uh, you mentioned DARPA. And DARPA is really, uh, and right now it's kind of uh, something from the past, but it's really laid the groundwork for our present, hasn't it? Yeah, I had dinner, in fact, with the former head of DARPA and some of the DARPA scientists. Uh, some conspirator theorists think the Pentagon is creating Area 51 and, and devilish weapons of mass destruction. And these scientists simply laughed and said, I wish we were. <laughs> we're too <laughs> primitive in our physics to be able to do those fantastic things that the conspiracy theorists think we're doing. But let's be blunt about this. The Pentagon did not create the Internet just so that people can use Facebook and get a data on Facebook. The Pentagon did not create the GPS system just so that mothers can locate their children. No, they were military weapons. They were male-dominated hierarchical weapons of warfighting to dominate over the Soviet Union. But today, they are basically female. 51% of the Internet users are women today, and it's about touching people. It's about reaching out and communicating with other people. And that's the nature of technology. When the telephone first came out, it was denounced by all the literati. They said, yuck, we're going to lose dinner table conversation. We're not going to talk to each other at cocktail parties anymore. We're simply going to talk to a disembodied voice somewhere in the ether. And you know something? The critics were absolutely right. The telephone is mechanical. We don't talk to our friends too much. And you know something? We love it because it expanded who we talk to. It expanded our experience of meeting other people. Imagine a world without a telephone. Same thing with the Internet. When the Internet first came out, people were afraid of the Internet. So I think we react to technology in three stages. First, we fear it. We say, yuck. I'm going to be left behind. This is 1984. This is creepy technology. Phase two is, hey, I could use this. I mean, word processing. I mean, locating um, uh, locations on GPS and finding out where your kids are. I could use this. And stage three is, ha, I knew it all along. In fact, I thought of it. <laughs> now, what happens when Moore's Law, let's get you back in front of that audience, you you didn't get a, a bunch of happy people when you told them you thought it was going to come to a grinding halt. 
Well, we physicists have been telling computer scientists that computer power cannot always double every 18 months. Sooner or later, at Christmas time, your toys are not going to be twice as powerful as the previous Christmas, and that could collapse the economy. Who's going to want to upgrade? Who's going to want to buy the latest Xbox, knowing that it's just as smart as last year's Xbox? Right? Silicon Valley could become a rust belt. Well, the computer engineers said, "Ha!" What are you talking about? Everybody knows it goes on forever. Wrong. I'm a physicist. We know that sooner or later you bump up against the quantum principle.、Uh, your Pentium chip today has a layer about 20 atoms across. That's the thinnest layer in your Pentium chip in your laptop. Well, by 2020, that layer will be five atoms across. At that point, electrons leak out, and at that point, it short circuits. So there is a limit. To silicon power, so therefore we physicists are desperately trying to create quantum computers, molecular computers, optical computers, DNA computers, protein computers, and for those people who think that robots are going to be infinitely smart tomorrow, because Moore's law is going to keep on going forever, well, there's a reality check: Moore's law will collapse. All things must pass. Well, let's talk a little bit about robots and AI. You know, it's it, it's kind of interesting because as I was reading this book, I had just read a book called Robopocalypse, which was a very remarkably entertaining vision of the future by Daniel H.、Uh, Wilson. He's a guy from Carnegie Mellon, and he's actually a guy who wrote a book that you cite in this book, "Where's My Jetpack?"、Mm-hmm. And he has a, a a pretty convincing vision of essentially a, a term, pre-terminator kind of event with、uh, an AI. Escaping and creeping through the internet and infecting all the robots that we're now surrounded with, who turn against us. But what you make the point you make is that essentially all our robots at this point and all all of our what we call artificial intelligence isn't mu- a whole lot more. Even the smartest deep blue and and the guy who just won Jeopardy isn't much more than like a, a really fast、uh, Dewey Decimal card catalog. Yeah, we forget that computers are adding machines. They just add a million times faster than us, so it appears as if they're thinking. Look at Watson, the IBM marvel that beat the two geniuses of Jeopardy. People were saying, "Uh-oh, this is a death warrant for the human race." Look, robots already smarter than us in Jeopardy. Yeah, but have you ever tried to interview Watson? Ever tried to take him out to dinner? Ever tried to like pal with him and、uh, t- gossip with him about、uh, who his best friends are? No, Watson can only do one thing. Win Jeopardy! It's a one-trick pony. You know your calculator today in your pocket can calculate a million times faster than you. But do you have an identity crisis, thinking that oh my God, my calculator computes a million times faster than me? No, we now realize that intelligence is a lot more complicated than we previously thought. So for my book, I had to ask myself a simple question: What's the problem? What's the problem? Why can't we build robots that are just like us? So I interviewed all the top people at MIT, Stanford, and places like that, and I asked them, "Why don't we have robot maids and butlers just like the Jetsons? Why don't we have them?" And the answer was, well, it kind of shocked me. I didn't know what the answer was till I interviewed these people. Two reasons, and that in turn will determine the job market of the future, because the jobs of the future will be those jobs that robots cannot do. First of all, robots do not have pattern recognition. They see much better than us, but they don't understand what they are looking at. They see lines, circles, squares, triangles, but they don't see human. They don't see lamp. They don't see bottle. They see just see lines, circles, squares, triangles. So pattern recognition will be a huge problem of the future. Voice recognition, pattern recognition, face recognition. Second, he's even bigger than that, and that is common sense. We know that water is wet, not dry. We know that mothers are older than their daughters. We know that strings can pull, strings cannot push. Sticks, on the other hand, can push, sticks cannot pull. Now, how did you know that? How did you know that animals do not like pain? How did you know that when you die, you don't come back the next day? Well, that's common sense. Any idiot knows this, right? Well, any idiot except a robot. Tell me in a line of calculus where it says that strings can pull, but strings cannot push. Show me a computer manual that says that water is wet and not dry, or that mothers are older than their daughters. That's common sense. Well, how many lines of common sense are there? Hundreds of millions of lines of common sense that a four-year-old child knows, but a robot does not. 
So these are huge problems. Robots that can recognize people's faces, recognize objects, navigate around a room, and can carry on a simple conversation because they understand the common sense of reality. That's the problem. Talk uh, about this, this idea that we have of the, what the singularity is and why you're, you don't believe in the singularity. Well, I believe in a version that's mm-hmm. different from most other people. Uh, first of all, the brain is not a computer. Uh, mm. We were misled for 50 years into thinking that the brain is a digital computer. The brain has no Pentium chip. It has no software, no programming, no Windows. And, you know, you can shock a lot of people by saying that the computer has no programming. I mean, where, where's the programming? What language does the brain program in? There's no chip, no subroutines, nothing. So what is the brain? The brain is a learning machine. Mm-hmm. It's a neural network. It rewires itself after learning a task. That's all it does. No programming required. So your laptop today is just as stupid as it was yesterday because your laptop don't learn anything. It's just as stupid. But the brain, that's all it does is it learns. It rewires itself. That's a neural network. And they're very difficult to create with neurons and transistors, very difficult to create the architecture of the brain. So let's not talk about the singularity now and not talk about the next 10 years, but the next 50 to 100 years. First of all, uh, if you interview AI people and ask them, when will the robots take over? The (laughs) numbers vary between 20 and 1,000 years. So even within the AI community, there's a huge variation as to when robots are going to be as smart as us. But it'll probably happen. And then there are at least three ways in which we can deal with robots that are smarter than us. One group of people that I interviewed say we should let them take over. They're going to be our children. It's like our children taking over from us when we die. So when humans die as a species, our robots, our children, will take over. Or maybe they'll put us in a zoo, throw peanuts at us, make us dance behind bars, just like we do with bears. But so what? It was meant to be that way. Evolution says survival of the fittest. If they are fitter, let let it be. That's one group of computer scientists. Another group of scientists say, are you crazy? I mean, letting the robots take over? No, we're going to fight. We're going to fight tooth and nail. We're going to put a chip in their brain to shut them off if they get murderous thoughts. This is like the Asimov school. We'll create robot fighters. We'll create uh, people like Harrison Ford that could take down robots and, and robots themselves that could take down robots. Then there's a third group who says, let it be. Merge with them. I mean, after all, there are perks to being a robot. You live forever. You have a perfect body. You saw the movie Surrogates with uh, Bruce Willis. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, why not be Superman? Why not have increased intelligence and merge with our creations? So these are the three basic attitudes toward the singularity when robots become smarter than us, and then they have children who are smarter than them, and then they have children that are smarter than them, and whoa, pretty soon you take over the universe with intelligence. I think it's going to be slower. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But, yeah, maybe by the end of the century. Right now, we have robots as smart as a, as, a, as a retarded cockroach. But I think that we'll eventually have robots as smart as a mouse. Eventually, robots as smart as a dog or a cat. Then maybe as smart as a monkey. And then, yeah, at that point, we should put a chip in their brain to shut them off because monkeys have an independent agenda, independent of humans. And so maybe we should, you know, either merge with them or make sure that they don't become murderous so we can coexist with them rather than lying down and letting them take over. You talk uh, about um, the future. Those of us who are uh, having to deal with these uh, monkey smart robots uh, will have benefited from uh, the next 90 years of medicine. And you talk a lot about the. Tell us what the three stages of medicine are. Yeah, this is huge. Uh, Medicine for 99% of its existence was hocus-pocus, magic, chicanery, witch doctorism, and aspirin. Some things did come out of that horrible period of experimentation. The second period was antibiotics and vaccines and modern surgery, which is very, very young. And then now we're entering the third stage of medicine, just in the last decade, in fact, and that is molecular medicine, genetic medicine, genomic medicine, reducing medicine to a computer program. 
So, for example, all of us will have a CD-ROM with all our genes on it. For the Discovery Channel, they took my blood, sent it on to Vanderbilt University, and sequenced most of my genes. And all of us will have a CD-ROM, and that's how our medical program will be set up, an owner's manual for your body. And then when body parts start to wear out, we'll simply grow new organs of the body from your own cells. Today, from your own cells, we can grow skin, bone, cartilage, noses, blood vessels, heart valves. The first bladder was grown four years ago. The first windpipe was grown last year from a woman's own cells. And in five years' time, we'll grow the first liver. So for all you alcoholics out there that can listen to this interview, take heart. We will grow livers perhaps within five years. I guess that's nice to know. Uh, talk about um, what is the science of bioinformatics? Okay. Um, many biologists, top biologists, think that eventually biology will be reduced to computer science because it's all molecules, it's all genetics, and bioinformatics is taking huge volumes of genetic data using a computer program to sort through this data to find the genes for intelligence and for certain personality strengths and for, for, for muscles and basically doing biology inside the memory of a computer. This is going to be theoretical biology that using a computer program and millions of genomes, we're going to be able to perform magical feats using software. And as biology becomes more and hones more and more down, the difference between you, the physicist, and the biologist is just going to become a matter of what you're looking at, isn't it? That's right. I've always thought that biology was a branch of physics. The great quantum physicist essentially founded all of modern biology. You realize that Erwin Schrodinger, the physicist who discovered quantum mechanics, he wrote a book called What is Life? saying that there must be a molecule, a molecule that encodes all the characteristics of, of what we are. Now, the biologists back then were taxonomists. They were busy giving names to bugs, learned names to fish. That's what biology was for most of modern history. And here comes this upstart physicist saying, no, there's a molecule out there. Find it. It has the code of life. That inspired another physicist called Francis Crick, who teamed up with uh, Watson to find that molecule. It is called DNA. Then you had to read that molecule. Then another quantum physicist, Walter Gilbert of Harvard, he could not get tenure at Harvard uh, doing uh, physics, so he switched to biology, and he figured out a way to mass sequence that DNA. And the rest is history. Pretty soon, all of us will have a, a CD-ROM. It'll cost about $100, and it'll be our owner's manual. And then pretty soon that CD-ROM will go down to a credit card, and then it'll be a ring, and then it'll just be something they bop in one of your teeth. <laughs> and yeah. you can scan as you walk by. <laughs> and what are we going to do with that chip? Not only will we create new organs of the body, but we'll also zap cancer, and basically the word tumor will disappear from the English language. For example, your toilet will be your front line of defense against cancer and all these horrible diseases because your toilet will pick up proteins emitted from maybe 100 cancer cells 10 years before a tumor forms. You know that Aretha Franklin today is dying of pancreatic cancer? Steve Jobs, the hero of the computer world, has pancreatic cancer. Patrick Swayze of Dirty Dancing fame, he died of pancreatic cancer. And we used to think that it's very aggressive. Two years, boom, you're dead. Very aggressive. Wrong. We sequenced the genes of pancreatic cancer, and we found out that everything we knew about that cancer was wrong. It's a slow-growing cancer. It takes 20 years on average to grow, but you don't feel it until the last two years, and then it's very aggressive, and then it's basically incurable. So in the future, your toilet will pick up proteins, enzymes emitted from 100 cancer cells in a colony, and the word tumor will disappear from the English language. Complements of your toilet and computer technology. But you say in the book that while we'll be able to repair cancers and we'll be able to detect them earlier and in effect cure them, we won't be able to stop it from, from happening, will we? 
Yeah, there are just too many types of cancers. However, for specific cancers, we will use nanotechnology to zap them like smart cells. Remember that science fiction movie, uh, Fantastic Voyage? Where, God, I love that movie. Yeah, where Raquel <laughs> Welch. Isaac Asimov. Yeah, Raquel Welch is swimming inside your blood. And the movie critic says, what a stupid idea having Raquel Welch swim inside your blood. Well, believe it or not, we're going to have that. Uh, Already we have molecules called nanoparticles that zero in on just cancer cells. I was amazed. Uh, I talked to, I had dinner with one of the people doing this. 90% 90 kill rate on tumor cells in certain tumors. These are molecules with poisons, chemotherapy poisons. They home in on cancer cells and they kill them. Just like that, zapping cancer cells. So I think that cancer, uh, we will view chemotherapy in the future like we view bloodletting today. For example, what killed George Washington? Many people don't know that the father of our country, George Washington, was killed by his own doctors. They bled him to death. He died of lack of blood because his doctors killed him because back then they didn't know any better. Well, Chemotherapy does save lives, but it's a horrible thing. Your hair falls out, you vomit. In the future, we'll use these smart bombs called nanoparticles to home in on cancer cells and zap them when there are maybe 100 of them in a cancer colony. Now, this brings us to nanotechnology. Um, This is, again, part of the trend towards making things smaller. And you describe a guitar that's the size of a molecule. Yeah, isn't it amazing? I had a demonstration of this when I went to IBM in San Jose. There's a machine there which allows me to play with atoms. Play with atoms as if they're ping pong balls. You sit behind this screen, and there are these ping pong balls on the screen, and they are individual atoms. And then you can move them. You put a cursor, grab the atom, move it, and you can actually spell out your own name. You can spell out your name or any other script just by moving atoms around a screen. These are called scanning tunneling microscopes. Uh, It won the Nobel Prize for the two people who created it. And it's making nanotechnology possible by which we can create machines the size of atoms. Now, one of the machines that uh, we're able to make with this kind of technology is a quantum computer. And I'd like you to talk about your experience when you went and saw them. This is one of the things that's really wonderful about this book is you write really great prose and you not only talk about the developments, but you take us into concrete places where we can see, kind of look over your shoulder as readers and see these incredible sights and understand how, um, as William Gibson said, and you put it in the beginning of the book, the future is, is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Right. In fact, I'm not a science fiction writer. Of the hundreds of predictions in my book, Physics of the Future, every single one has a prototype. If it didn't have a prototype, I would reject it because there's a lot of quackery out there. Mm, You know, mm -hmm. live forever, zero-point energy, perpetual motion machines. There's a lot of quackery out there. So I, as a physicist, could eliminate the quackery and then take you to the laboratories like I did with a TV camera, except I'm taking you to the prose of my book to visit these places where they are making breakthroughs with nanotechnology. For example, the space elevator. You realize that 100 years ago, over 100 years ago, when the Eiffel Tower was being built, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, a Russian scientist, said that if they can build an Eiffel Tower that big, why don't they just keep on going? Why don't they go into the sky and create a space elevator? Then he did the mathematics. If you have a ball on a string and you spin it, how come the ball on a string doesn't fall? It doesn't fall because of centrifugal force. So he said to himself, if I build the Eiffel Tower straight up from Paris into outer space, the Earth spins so fast that the string is not going to fall. It's a skyhook. It'll just stay up there like the beanstalk of Jack in the beanstalk. You can literally climb your way to heaven. That's a space elevator. You go inside, hit the up button, and go into outer space. Well, there's a problem. Uh, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky was a physicist. He could calculate the tension on that string, and the tension was greater than the tensile strength of steel, so it would snap. So for 100 years, this idea got nowhere. It was picked up by science fiction writers. Um, Arthur C. Clarke did a science fiction novel around the space elevator. But with the coming of nanotechnology, nanotubes, and graphene, everything has changed. You know that graphene is a single layer of carbon. 
It is the strongest substance known to science, stronger than diamonds. You can get an elephant, put the elephant on a pencil, balance the pencil on a sheet of graphene, and graphene will not tear. That's the power of nanotechnology. And it is strong enough to support a space elevator. Now, uh, one of the other um, aspects of, of nanotechnology is what you call programmable matter. So yeah. talk about programmable matter. This is, this is another godlike power you're giving us. I, I like that. Yeah. Zeus could simply imagine something out of nothing and then create it. Now, when you read science fiction and comic books, they have something called shape-shifting. We all remember Terminator 2 when Arnold Schwarzenegger had to go up against a blob that can turn into any other blob or any other thing. That was a pretty powerful robot. And one of the X-Men is a shape-shifter. So why can't we build shape-shifting? Well, as a physicist, you have nightmares trying to figure out how to shape-shift, but we think it's possible. In fact, I took a TV crew down to Pittsburgh to photograph how it would be done. Here's how you do it. You take a chip, and you make it as small as possible. We can make a chip the size of a grain of sand. That's the smallest chip you can make. In principle, you can make it even smaller than that. Then on the charges, on the surface of this grain of sand, you can program it because it's a chip. Therefore, it'll stick. It'll stick to other grains of sand in a precise way. If you push a button, you, re you reprogram the chip, and it releases the bond and sticks to another particle of a chip. So in one arrangement, you have a book. A book has lots of little particles all glued to each other with this electric field. And then you push a button. Every little particle is programmed to move, rearrange, and all of a sudden it's no longer a book, it's a table. You push it again, and it's a TV set. In the future, it may be possible to create a city in the desert by pushing a button. Well, that sounds uh, easy, easy except for the city planning. And this gets to something that I think is pretty important in your book, the idea of software. And, and But all throughout, this reminds me of the old, uh, what they used to say at the beginning of the Internet, that content is king. It's no, not seen that way so much anymore, but I think it's really the underlying truth of both what's worthwhile on the Internet and also what happens in your book. Everything, the, for all the great hardware we'll be able to summon, for all the fantastic powers we'll have by virtue of these developments, we'll still need somebody to write some good software. Yeah, the bottleneck is going to be software. The relationship between hardware and software is very simple. Hardware gets cheaper every year more powerful and cheaper, eventually it will measure hardware in like pork bellies. Uh, we'll measure by the ton. Uh, the largest source of landfill in any modern city will be chips, old chips, old hardware. But software, that's going to be valuable because a human is a bottleneck. A human has to write the software. So this is going to affect the world economy. Commodities are getting cheaper every year, just like hardware, just like pork bellies. Food is getting cheaper every year. You know that today you had breakfast that the King of England could not have had 100 years ago. Delicacies from around the world, cheap spices and stuff like that. But even though commodities are going down in price, intellectual capital <clears throat> keeps rising in price. So intellectual capital will be the currency of the future. And what is intellectual capital? What robots cannot do. Common sense, creativity, analysis, talent, artwork, telling a joke, writing a book, writing a screenplay, tourism. These are things that are beyond the capabilities of robots because they involve common sense. So the currency of the future will be intellectual capital, which in turn is basically common sense, what robots cannot do. Robots do not understand human values, so we will have, we will have lawyers in the future. The artwork of artists will be on the web. We'll have artwork in the future. And Tony Blair likes to say that England derives more revenue from rock music than it does the coal mining industry. But if you think of England, a worker, you think of a coal miner, the, the, the salt of the earth. But it's rock and roll, which generates more income for England. And rock and roll is intellectual capital. No robot is going to create rock and roll and, and excite the kids. 
Now, in order to make all this happen, we're going to need to be able to plug something in and turn on a light switch. I'd like you to talk about a prediction made by a man named Hubbard. And this is a prediction that was made long ago, but has proved unfortunately and uh, increasingly ang- anxious and anxiety-inducingly true. Yeah. Hubbard was an engineer for Shell Oil. And in the 1960s, when America was rolling in oil, especially from uh, Texas, he predicted that we would hit the halfway point for oil in the United States. And after that, we're going to have to import oil. Well, that was heresy. That was blasphemy. We were rolling in oil in the 60s. Import oil? No way. Well, Hubbard was right on the dot. He got it to within one-year accuracy. And then he predicted when the world would hit the 50% point and we would be importing oil for the world rather than simply rolling in oil from Saudi Arabia. And he predicted that would happen early in the 21st century. And so I speak in Saudi Arabia once in a while. They're worried. They're worried that we could be hitting Hubbard's peak. Now, to keep oil consumption going, we would have to discover a new Saudi Arabia every 10 years. Now, think about that. Are we going to discover a new Saudi Arabia every 10 years? I don't think so. We'll never run out of oil. We'll always discover new oil deposits, but they're smaller They're not huge like Saudi Arabia, and that means an energy crunch. Now, uh, one of the things I like about your book is that uh, for all the wonderful predictions, you also give us some kind of uh, big ideas. And one of the things I took away from this book was that it's a good idea to pay attention to smart people (laughs) such as yourself. (laughs) And and in this case, you talk about a bet that uh, Henry Ford and Thomas Edison made. And I think that was just so interesting because they kind of both won the bet. And these are two important men that it was well worth our attention. Right. They were friends. There are pictures of them together. Uh, Thomas Edison bet that electricity would energize the cars of the future. And Henry Ford said, no, 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 it's the coming of gasoline, which back then was quite primitive. And it was not foreseen that gasoline would take over. And, of course, Henry Ford was right. But in the long term, maybe Thomas Edison will be right. Here's the problem. Pound for pound, gasoline has more energy, more joules per kilogram then a battery, pound for pound, because gasoline is concentrated sunlight. Concentrated sunlight since the time of the dinosaurs. That's hard to beat. But oil pollutes. Oil creates a greenhouse effect. So we have the downside of oil, plus there's only a finite amount of it, while sunlight is basically for free. Now, when you get electric cars, they will be non-polluting. They already exist, but they're kind of expensive, and they require coal-fired plants to supply the electricity. So electric cars are a halfway station. They're not going to solve the problem of global warming because they require coal to create the electricity to energize their batteries. Therefore, in long term, we're going to have to find a new source of energy itself. And I think that in 10 years, it'll be solar hydrogen. Right now, oil is going up in price on average. Solar hydrogen is going down on average. And the two curves will cross in about 10 years' time. Well, we have another form of energy that uh, we're using right now. These are our nuclear uh, fission plants, and this hasn't been working out so well. You were just in Japan, weren't you, to, taking a look at the, the plants there? Tell us what's going on. Uh, well, my relatives fled Japan uh, really? because of the chaos. They, they had to evacuate. Um, for children, it's not a good idea to have them exposed to radiation. Mm. And radiation is now appearing in the Tokyo water. Plus, there's a run on bottled water and food. People are stocking food. You can't buy food in an ordinary supermarket in Tokyo because people are hoarding it. They're stockpiling it, stockpiling water, and electricity is rationed. And so it's very difficult for children to to survive in in a place like that. Sooner or later, there could be mass panic. There could be a mass exodus out of Tokyo if the reactor accident gets any worse. Now, what happened? If you're driving a car and your brakes don't work, you're in big trouble. The car surges out of control, and you have no brakes. That's the tsunami which hit the nuclear power plants in Fukushima. The brakes don't work because the tsunami wiped out the backup systems. Then your radiator blows up. That's a hydrogen gas explosion which ripped apart the domes, the, the buildings at Fukushima. Then your gasoline tank is about to catch on fire and incinerate you. 
Well, that's the criticality, not the criticality, but the meltdowns taking place in the reactor. So what do you do? Brakes don't work. Car's out of control. Radiator blows up. Your gas tank's about to go in flames. What do you do? You drive it into a river. That's what they did. They're shooting seawater, seawater into the reactor. But there's not enough, and plus seawater is corrosive. So what do you do? <clears throat> you can't use seawater forever. You call out the local fire department. That's what's preventing a major catastrophe, the local firemen. How did we get into such a mess? That's a good question. And it seems that we're equally unprepared here in the United States. There have been some looks at some of our local power plants, and they are woefully unprepared for any kind of seismic activity, even if they're sitting on top of a fault. Yeah. In California, we have two nuclear power plants, San Onofre near San Diego and Diablo Canyon between San Francisco and Los Angeles. And it wouldn't take much for an earthquake to destabilize them. San Onofre is designed to handle a 7.0 earthquake. But, hey, San Andreas Fault can generate an 8.0 earthquake. So it makes you think. My grandfather was in the San Francisco earthquake of 1906 that leveled the whole city, engulfed it in flames. It could happen again. Now, um, it, besides this, there's the problem of the waste. So nuclear... Uh, uh, fission doesn't seem like a good uh, solution to our our engine our energy needs. You talk about uh, nuclear fusion, and you visited an amazing place here in Northern California. Tell us about NIF. This is an incredible scene. Yeah, in fact, I took a film crew for the Science Channel to visit the National Ignition Facility in Livermore, California, where they make hydrogen bombs, or they design hydrogen bombs. They make them elsewhere. Well, it turns out that fusion could be our power source by mid-century. Not anytime soon, but by 2030, 2040, 2050, we could use seawater as our basic energy source. The hydrogen from seawater can be fused to create electricity forever. We have enough seawater to keep us going for thousands and thousands of years. But it hasn't worked yet. They're prototypes. But we hope to get their prototypes working by in the next decade and a half. One of the things that, that I think is really interesting and that you do very well as a writer is use uh, analogy and metaphor to help us understand some of these concepts uh, and to help us wrap our brains around some of the kind of the amazing feats of science. There's one point where you say that the um, PlayStation 3 has more computing power than the biggest military uh, supercomputers of 1997. I mean, that is not that long ago. That's right. Your cell phone has more computer power than all of NASA when they put two men on the moon. You see these old pictures of the mission headquarters when they put uh, Buzz Aldrin on the moon. You look at those computers and you say, oh, my God, there's 64 kilobyte memory computers. Can you imagine going to the moon on the basis of kilobytes of memory? I mean, I wouldn't put my life in a space capsule like that. Today, kids... Kids have gigabytes, gigabytes of memory. And there we are sending people to the moon using computers that today uh, wouldn't even, even compete with a cell phone. You got to see moon rocks, didn't you? That must have been really exciting. Yeah, I got my PhD at Berkeley at the Rad Lab there. And I had the chance to see moon rocks very soon after the landing because we have a laboratory there. And... Um, yeah, under a microscope, I saw something that I've never seen before. R moon rock has craters, of course, but inside craters, there are tinier craters. Inside them, there are even tinier craters. It goes on and on and on. Craters inside craters inside craters. That's impossible on the Earth, but it's possible on the moon because there's no air on the moon. And that poses some dangers for any of our future space settlements. If we would want to go out there... Um, that could be a problem, huh? These are micrometeorites, meteorites you can't even see that could pierce your spacesuit. So, yeah, that's a problem. You have some really interesting visions of, uh, of space travel. And, of course, it looks like it's becoming more and more obvious that manned space travel is not the most effective way for us to go. And robots are much, much better. Well, to put a pound of anything in orbit costs $10,000. So imagine your body made out of solid gold, 
That's what it costs to put you just in orbit around the Earth. To put you on the moon costs about $100,000 a pound. To put you on Mars costs about a million dollars a pound, which is your weight in diamonds. So go to a jewelry store, take all the diamonds, and assemble you made out of diamonds. That's what it costs to put you on Mars. Well, you have this interesting vision of uh, star travel. We've always seen star we see star travel, we see, you know, the enterprise, these giant spaceships, generation spaceships, but you talk about something called nano starships. Yeah, forget Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. Most of the energy goes to simply lifting the steel up to that velocity. Why not create a spaceship that is the size of your fingernail or even smaller than that, a chip? Why not just send a chip into outer space by the millions, billions of chips? They only cost a penny apiece. Shoot them around Jupiter. The magnetic field whips them near the speed of light. And because they're so tiny, it doesn't take that much energy to send them near the speed of light. You realize that in a simple high school experiment involving electricity, you can send electrons near the speed of light because they are electrons, not spaceships. So particles hit near the speed of light all the time. So why not do that with nanotechnology? Take a molecule, send it near the speed of light, and have it create a big moon base on the other side that radios back all the information. That's the way to go. One of the things I was really happy to see in your book was that you looked not just at the uh, you looked at the science, but you also looked at the science of wealth of what would happen to our economy, this vision of our economy. And again, you started with a historical vision, which I thought was just really startling to read when you laid it out. How the the power and influence of the Chinese and Islamic empires looked so untoppable back then. Yeah, uh, here's a question. Why are we speaking English on this phone conversation, on uh, the radio conversation? Well, we had the Industrial Revolution. We had the age of imperialism, blah, blah, blah. Well, but historically, the Chinese were way ahead of us. They have a civilization that's lasted much longer than the British civilization. And the Muslim civilization almost overran all of Europe. You realize that Europe might have been just a colony, a minor colony of the Muslim empire. What happened? Well, if you were a Martian, landing on the earth in the year 1500, what would you see? First, you'd see Europe in ruins, the Inquisition, the torture. Scientists there were tortured back then during the Inquisition. Europe was a net importer of technology, not an exporter of technology, a net importer of technology. Then you have the Chinese. Great inventions, paper, the compass, movable type, gunpowder. It just goes on and on and on. All the things the Chinese invented. And look at the Muslim empire. Look at algebra. Algebra. It's a, it means the, the word al. Look at altair. Look at all the stars in the heavens that start with al. Look at optics. Look at all, look at basic physics. They, it was worked out by, by the Muslims. So what happened? What happened? to flip the fortunes of all these nations and empires. Well, for the Chinese, it was very clear. They created a fleet of ships so great that they wanted to see what was out there in the entire world. The fleet was much bigger than Columbus's fleet. You could put all of Columbus's boats on one of the Chinese boats. That's how big these boats were. These boats brought back elephants, brought back all sorts of exotic animals from Africa into China where there were woodcuts. Woodcuts are these animals being paraded in the streets of the capital. But then, I simplify, but then the emperor said, is that all? Where are the great empires to rival the Chinese? Where are they? Are we number one? If so, burn the boats. I simplify, of course. But what happened was they burned the boats. They let the greatest fleet ever assembled in the history of Homo sapiens, a fleet that would not be rivaled again for another few hundred years. They let it decay, and China turned inward. The Muslims turned inward because they said that God, Allah, is so powerful, he should not be bound by natural law. God is beyond natural law. Therefore, we should not study natural law because they are hindrances, hindrances to the power of Allah. So the Muslim empire decayed. And then what did Europe do? Europe discovered capitalism, gunboats, gunpowder, and the rest is history. 
Now, one of the things, I, I think this is a really wonderful book. This is a kind of book that made me start reading when I was a kid because it really captures your imagination, but it has the ring of truth. So when you walk up to your parents, they're not going to say, hey, it's just science fiction. Forget about it. You're living in a fantasy world. This is the real world. This is all now. I'd like you to talk about creating this book, and I'm wondering what you, uh, f- for a book that's about the future, Tell me a bit, little bit what you think the future of books and reading are. Well, <clears throat> I have something called, you know, the caveman principle, where no matter how many gadgets we have, if we have a choice between high touch and high tech, we'll take high touch rather than high tech, or we'll, we'll take both. So when it comes to the book, well, take a look at theater, for example. Uh, live theater goes back even before the Greeks, of course. But when um, television, radio came out, people said, "Uh uh-oh, there goes live theater. And then when the Internet comes along, they said, oh, there goes television. Wrong. We coexist with all these mediums. We coexist with live theater. We coexist with uh, television, radio, the Internet. We like to have all of them. So today we have more horses than in 1800, except they're used for recreational purposes. But we have more horses today than in 1800. So that's where humans, if they have a choice between high touch and high tech, will take high touch because we are cavemen still and we like to bond with people. We like to do the things that cavemen do. We like Facebook because cavemen would like Facebook if they had it, you know, a million years ago. (laughs) I've been speaking with Michio Kaku. His new book is The Physics of the Future. Thank you for joining me, Michio. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.